Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Shortly before Ascension Day in 1961, Lieutenant Commander Alan Shepard, one of the original Mercury 7 uh, astronauts, was launched 116 miles up into space. The whole mission of this first American space traveler lasted only 15 minutes and carried him just 300 miles downrange. But it was just the patriotic boost America needed. It meant that apart from land and sea and air, a whole new frontier of God's creation had been opened for man to explore. Ten years later, Shepard would become the fifth man to walk on the moon and the very first to try his hand at a little lunar golf. It was brought to mind because just a week or so ago, the official flag of the United States Space Force was revealed, our country's newest military branch. And just last Sunday, the Air Force's mysterious, reusable so-called spy space plane, the X-37B, was launched back into space for a sixth extended flight, this one as long as two years. Loaded with scientific experiments, it looks a lot like a miniature space shuttle, and it's already logged seven years and ten months of previous flight time. You could watch the launch live last Sunday morning, about the time you're getting ready for church. You could see the second stage engage, about the time you were typing in the church address into your computer to log on. And then suddenly, the live feed went dead. Well, it is an unmanned, classified spy space plane after all, and aside from, you know, up there, they really don't want anybody to know up where. NASA also unveiled new rules to guide behavior in space and on the moon for the whole world that flip people out all over the world. You know, I, I was like, how dare they? But we're all about the gospel, not rules around here this morning as we take a look at Jesus' own ascension back into heaven. How far we've come since Alan Shepard's nail-biting 15-minute flight. And even all these years later, in the big scheme of space travel, the real work has only just begun. You know, think of the parallel we have this morning. When our Lord completed his work of our redemption here on earth, He gathered his disciples together on a mountaintop and began to ascend into heaven. After just a small distance, a cloud came and took him out of their sight. Now, Jesus didn't just keep on rising behind that cloud all the way into outer space. No, he was going somewhere else, wasn't he? He was going home. He removed himself from the visible presence of his disciples back on earth. It marked the culmination of everything that had proceeded in the years since our Lord had first come down to earth that very first Christmas morning. Some 33 years earlier, he left his throne and he left his Father in heaven. He set aside the full use of his glory and his majesty to come down into our world, onto our planet by being born as one of us. Humbling himself to be born in the form and flesh of a man, he became obedient to the Father. Obedient even so far as death on a cross because that's what it took to redeem man from slavery to sin. To provide us with a way to stand before our creator in the confidence that by faith in Jesus, all our sins have been forgiven for his sake, apart from any worthiness of our own. In accordance with his human nature, the king and 
co-creator of the entire universe, died for the whole world and was buried in a borrowed tomb. But he wouldn't stay in that tomb for long. Salvation had come to Jew and non-Jew alike. That work had been done. But the work of getting that good news out had just begun. What do you suppose Jesus was feeling as he was ascending? Looking down on this band of friends, the men he'd spent the last three or maybe three and a half years with, as they looked up at him, growing smaller and smaller by the moment. You know, it must have seemed to Jesus as if they were being swallowed up by the the vastness of the world around them, a world that so badly needed what he'd come to accomplish, what he'd now offered. Full and free forgiveness and a relationship with the one, the only one, who loves unconditionally. Did he wonder if he could trust them with the greatest message ever entrusted to anyone? Would they be able to continue without him at their side? They were only human, after all. The easy answer is that he was true God as well as true man, that he knew exactly what was going to happen. But saying amen right here and going out for a virtual donut wouldn't help us appreciate God's own hand at work and what would surely have been an insurmountable task without his help. So let's talk about that. We can begin with another story of another innocent death that didn't end in an empty tomb. The story of John the Baptist. Jesus had once told his disciples, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. John had been sent to pave the way for for Jesus by preparing hearts for his coming as the Lord was embarking on his adult ministry. John paid for his faith and his witness to the truth with his life. After his murder, Matthew tells us, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. And that was the end of John. And the end of John's disciples, his own disciples. They parted and went their own way. Some of them surely sought Jesus out to tell him what had happened, but uh, the others were really, as far as we know, never heard from again. Because their master was dead, their cause was dead. And there was nothing left to hold them together. And they they just sort of disintegrated. But in Jesus' story, the end turned out to be a new beginning. Within just a few years, his group of followers would be making their own way with the murdered body of their master to his grave, this time on Good Friday. They laid him there with even greater love, but no more hope than their predecessors. The bond that held them together was gone too. And without hearing the news of the resurrection yet or seeing the resurrected Jesus themselves, uh, they too began to drift apart. Thomas, uh, one of the 12 closest to to Jesus, had already wandered off by Sunday night, Easter evening. Two other followers were already, already on their way home to Emmaus. They saw no reason to stay in Jerusalem any longer, and being a follower of Jesus had become, frankly, pretty dangerous. On Sunday morning, the women had gone to the tomb to finish the work of anointing Jesus' body, but they were left to go alone because hope was in short supply. When Mary Magdalene returned from the grave with news that Jesus was alive, she evidently found Peter and John alone because it was just the two of them who ran back to see the empty tomb for themselves. In the barely three days since Jesus had been killed, the bonds that had once held this group together had already begun to loosen. 
But that's where the two stories part ways. Like the birth of Jesus had divided uh, all of history into B.C. and A.D. The empty tomb makes all the difference between hope and despair. Because God raised Jesus from the dead to show us that he had accepted God's or his son's work of salvation for us. If Jesus hadn't risen, nothing in the world could have saved his disciples from the same fate as John's. But he did rise, and that changed everything. And on this day, his ascension would be a a powerful catalyst to get them back on track for the mission that Jesus had left them with. Earlier that day, according to Luke's account in our gospel lesson, Jesus had opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he had said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And in just ten days, on Pentecost, he would send that power, the Holy Spirit. It would be the power of the Spirit that would make their witness effective. Certainly they understood now that Christ himself was at the center of the Scriptures. They'd seen the proof in his resurrection from the dead. But would the bond they'd formed over the past three years be strong enough to hold them together in the face of the the persecution and, and danger that was coming? You know, the vastness of the job Jesus was entrusting them with. So let me ask again. Before the ascending Jesus was hidden by a cloud, do you think he was even a little apprehensive? According to his human nature, let's say. Just a little worried, maybe, about these guys keeping it all together and pulling off the greatest mission ever. I would have been. But then I'm not God. I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. And I'm about as far from perfect as people come. But we're talking about Peter here, right? Along with, who along with James and John had fallen asleep in the garden when they were supposed to be keeping watch on the night Jesus uh, was praying, the night of his arrest. The same Peter who had denied even knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three different times as he stood in the courtyard during Jesus' trial, watching from the outside, denied even knowing him. And when the temple guards had come to arrest Jesus in the garden, the other disciples ran away, deserting him. These were the same men who had once argued among themselves about who was greatest. And two of them had already asked for VIP seats in his kingdom at Jesus' side, one on his left, one on his right. During the 40 days after his resurrection, while while the risen Christ was busy showing himself alive to hundreds of people, More than half of his disciples had already gone back to fishing. What was the glue that would hold them together now that Jesus would return to his father's side? You know, these guys were common folks. They weren't rocket scientists and they weren't theologians or church leaders or or, uh, uh, corporation CEOs. And yet Jesus had entrusted them with the greatest mission any man had ever been asked to embark on. Even Moses wasn't asked to save the whole world. Just the Israelites. Certainly the disciples were apprehensive about the future because they continued looking up at the sky long after Jesus had disappeared. And where he was headed was no secret. It took two angels to bring their eyes back down to earth by asking them what they were doing, still looking up. 
Someday Jesus would come back the same way they said, but in the meantime, they're implying that there was work to do. The world needed a Savior. And now that Savior had come and his salvation was waiting to be accepted by that world as a free gift. But most of the people didn't even know about it. It would be the apostles' job to show them their need, remind them that they were sinners who without Jesus would stand condemned before a holy, just God. And then to introduce him to them in the the person of Jesus, the word of God made flesh, who dwelt among us, the face of God, who showed us the love of God. Through their witness in the word, the world would learn it had a need that only Jesus could fulfill. It was a a common cause that would bind them together as one body, even though uh, they would be spreading the gospel individually in many cases, and, and they'd headed out into the world in almost every compass direction. Jesus may have been the ascending Christ returning to his throne in heaven, but he wasn't leaving them alone. The Spirit would empower them. The need would would bind their hearts together in a common cause. God wanted man to be reconciled to him through faith in the perfect life and atoning death and finally the resurrection of his son, Jesus. He wanted to bridge that gulf sin had created, separating God and man. The cross and the crucified and risen one was that bridge. The disciples would use what has become an old recipe now for success, a mantra for an entrepreneurial spirit. Find a need and fill it. That's what gave us the first GE smoke detector. Research showed that people had a serious fear of a house fire breaking out while they slept. But the problem wasn't really an urgent problem until the company came up with a solution in the form of an affordable smoke detecting device. It's where Corningware came from, one of the most important and successful consumer products since the introduction of Pyrex Bakeware back in 1915. Corning believed that 1960s housewives were sure to be attracted to its newest advance in ceramic cookware. And the way it was marketed made women wonder how they ever managed without it. Imagine being able to prepare a meal in a beautiful serving dish placed directly over an open flame a dish that may have just come out of the freezer, and do it without cracking because of this extreme temperature change. And then in all its appealing white beauty, it could be brought directly to the table. It was another one of those things people didn't even know they needed until someone told them about it. But when they were told, they were drawn to it. You know, Jesus never challenges his disciples, his followers, to be warriors. He wasn't asking them to to, uh, lead a crusade on a white charger, to fight holy wars against pagan idol worshipers. He challenged them to be just one thing, witnesses. And through their witness and the word of God, the Holy Spirit would go to work, all that work overseen by the one ruling over his church in heaven. You know, in the decades to come, all but one of the apostles would be martyred for the cause. All but one. The fallen world just doesn't seem to want to take good news lying down. But even though the, the, the lives of these men were lost, their ministry was carried on by those they touched, and their ministry by those they touched. They left a legacy, one that still works the miracle of faith, that still demonstrates a need, but 
not without offering a solution to that need. The Spirit brought us into that legacy of faith, not to hoard the good news, but to share it, trusting the Spirit and the Lord above to do the heavy lifting of conversion, softening hardened hearts, uh, opening spiritually blind eyes and ears. And what about your legacy? You know, a Christian's legacy is composed of the seeds of faith that he or she has planted in the hearts of others. And we may never live to see the day those seeds blossom into, into life. Blossoming is the job of the Spirit too. But they will blossom. They will, because the word you share has power. You know, we're online now for the whole world to see, right? But someone has to invite them to watch and to hear what God has to say, what God has done. Your neighbor, maybe, or someone in your own family, maybe a friend. In 1923, when Pancho Villa lay bleeding from a fatal gunshot wound, he was surrounded by reporters. His last words were, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. His final thoughts were about how the world would remember him. Profound last words were the only legacy left for him to leave, and he died filled with regret. Don't leave this life with your journey through it sprinkled with those kinds of unrecoverable moments that, that when you might have made a difference, but chose not to. Knowing that blossoming is the job of the Spirit and simply planting is ours, there should never be any reason to leave this world with regrets. As you prepare, even today, to meet your Savior and your King, I pray that your last words may never be, I wish I had said something. Thanks be to our Savior and our King, our ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.